I'm Catherine. And I'm Sarah. We love languages and learning. And we're curious about the intersection of language diversity and learning and development in corporate and higher ed spaces. We want to know, why is language accessibility for all important in learning environments? What does it look like when all languages are treated equitably? And what does the future hold for multilingualism in L&D? Join us in this podcast as we talk with experts about all things L&D and language. This is L&D Loves Languages. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Catherine. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So we're recording our first episode of our podcast today which feels exciting. Yes, very exciting. And we decided um, that we would answer the questions, the same questions that we're going to ask our guests on this podcast. So um, let's start with the first question. Sounds good. And um, I guess I'll pitch it to you. What is your language story? So I grew up um, speaking English in my when I was a kid um, in my family we just spoke English but I do think it's interesting how like my parents who are from the Midwest would like pepper their conversation with like German phrases that are I grew up in New England but they're from the Midwest and no one in New England like peppers their conversation with German phrases but mm-hmm. it's it's a thing in the Midwest and um or at least in the part of the Midwest that my parents grew up in. And my mother studied French in college, and so she always liked to add French phrases into whatever she was saying. And, um, and I, started taking, I started taking Spanish in elementary school, and I'd, I'd always loved like words, like reading and writing and, um, and, and just words in general. And so English language arts and Spanish were always my two favorite subjects and then when I was in high school my uh, my Spanish teacher connected me to a family in Spain and I spent a summer in Madrid with them and it was totally life-changing um I'm going to age myself a little bit but back then I didn't have a cell phone or internet access or anything and I was fully immersed in Spanish for all of my waking hours and I didn't speak or hear English for weeks except when I called home like once a week and And it gave me the opportunity to reflect uh, really intensely on how languages shapes our sense of self um, because I felt like such a stunted version of myself that summer. Like I couldn't be funny on purpose um, and, um, and I couldn't use slang and I couldn't really tell coherent stories. And, um, and the experience made me hungry to kind of grow a Spanish-speaking version of Catherine. Like, could I be myself in Spanish? And so I double majored in Spanish and English when I went to college. And after, I, and I studied abroad in Argentina, and I got my first job um, teaching English in Puerto Rico. And all of this in kind of pursuit of like building a Spanish-speaking identity. And um, I pursued my teacher certificate in Spanish, and I've been teaching middle and high school Spanish pretty much ever since I came back from Puerto Rico. And eventually I did a master's degree in Spanish language and translation in Madrid. And so it's been, Spanish has been a huge part of my life for like over 30 years. And I've been thinking a lot about how like the language and my experiences with different Spanish speaking people have shaped who I am. So instead of creating a Spanish-speaking version of me, 
um, like I hoped to do when I was 16, um, Spanish really made me who I am today. Oh, that's amazing. How about you? What's your language story? Yeah. Um, So I think my language story is I also grew up in a in a household that only spoke English. Um, and I was always fascinated by language. I like I can remember being in elementary school and finding a little learn French picture book with a cassette tape uh, and, you know, getting so excited when my mom agreed to buy it. And um, I, I distinctly remember that I didn't look at I didn't listen to the tape for whatever reason. And I just was trying to sound out the French. And as you can imagine, yeah, that that didn't sound anything like French. And one of my friend's moms heard me practicing. And I think she either had taken French in school or just was more aware of language, not being seven years old. And she was like, I think you need to listen to the tape. You know, Mm. like the, the pronunciation matters in language. And that was just one of those little tiny moments. It was like... I don't know why that sticks in my memory, but it does. And I felt like that was my first introduction to, I want to understand how to talk to people in other languages. I want to like puzzle out what these words and sounds and squiggles on the page, you know, convey when it's not the language I know that just feels like communication. And Um, from there, I would do different types of self-study. So, you know, um, I guess staying myself too. (laughs) CD was, I had CD-ROMs and I had cassette tapes and I had all these things. And, um, I tried to learn Latin. I tried to learn French. I tried to learn, um, German and Italian. The one language I didn't try to learn was Spanish. And, uh, it was sort of, uh, funny in a way I have nothing against Spanish I think it's a wonderful language but everyone was learning Spanish that Mm -hmm. I knew and my mom was like this is a very important language you need to learn it and me being me as a small child I was like I don't want to learn something useful I just want to like learn all the interesting things (laughs) looking back that was perhaps not the most mature opinion but um that was sort of my like playing with language And then when I got to high school and college, I started studying it more um, like in classes with other people. And suddenly I realized how important community is in language and practice, conversational practice, because I'd always just been like, I can teach myself this with a book, which is sort of hysterical looking back on it. But I was convinced at the time. And then I was always confused why I wasn't feeling like I could get anywhere. But then in college, I decided to take um, an American Sign Language class on a whim. I was actually dual enrolled in high school in a college class, and I didn't have to take anything specific. So I thought, well, this looks interesting. I'll try it. And it just clicked. Like, that was the language that made sense to me. Um, And along with learning the language... I was introduced to the linguistics of it, the structure, why it worked, partly because um, my teacher sort of had to start with 
convincing half the class that it was a language because there's so many misconceptions about sign language. So she first day was like, we're going to talk about what makes a language a language and how ASL does have the structure of other spoken languages. And so from day one, I was exposed to thinking about the language almost like mechanically as well as learning it. And that just, I fell in love with linguistics there and also got introduced to deaf culture and understanding how community and culture plays into a language. Um, and after that first class I was hooked, I looked around and found the one college program in my state that offered a bachelor's in sign language interpreting. And I was like, that's where I'm going. And that's what I did. So I double majored in sign language and English. And after that, as I went along, was very focused on the one hand, I was going to become an interpreter, I was going to be involved in the deaf community. I wanted to be so immersed in this language. And on the other hand, because of the English degree, I was also working in the writing center and seeing what it was like to talk about English also from sort of a technical perspective and seeing how everyone had slightly a different experience of English and how they used it to communicate speaking versus writing. Um, sometimes I'd work with deaf students or international or multilingual students in the Rain Center and I'd realize that they could explain rules about the language in a way that I couldn't as a native speaker, but I could just hear it and say, ah, that doesn't sound right. And that got me even more interested in how is it that we process and use language? And to your point about feeling like a, you know, a different version of yourself or a stunted version because there were so many things you couldn't do, I started seeing that for myself in ASL because I was always frustrated that I couldn't communicate or I'd try to sign quickly and I'd end up making all of these mistakes. And I'm like, but I don't want to go slow and sound like a beginner or look like a beginner. Um, but then also talking to these people who were, you know, from other countries or who, you know, had grown up, they were deaf and they signed and just understanding they had so many interesting thoughts and insights they wanted to share, but we were struggling to understand each other because of language. And so that just got me very interested in the whole package of language and how we communicate and also the way we can sometimes judge each other based on language use um, and how many misconceptions there are about language and linguistics. And so from there, I decided to do a master's degree in teaching English as a second language because I was interested not so much in actually teaching English, although I did do that for a while, but in the combination of looking at how we use language and also understanding how we um like how we use it with each other, but then also how it's used and perceived in an educational context and what impact that has on people's access and opportunities. So, yeah. Yeah, Sarah, I can see how even though we have different experiences, um, we still share a lot of the same perspectives and like views on the world. It's one of the things that um, I like about you. Um, so Sarah, how have your language skills impacted your career path? At first I was focused on, I am going to be an interpreter to the exclusion of all else. Like I wanted to be a sign language interpreter. I wanted to freelance. I wanted to work in video relay. I wanted to do medical. I wanted just to explore every path possible related to interpreting. And I wanted that to be my life. 
Um, and so I graduated college, I got my certification at the state level, and I started interpreting, and I discovered that um, the freelancing side of interpreting, the business side, the marketing side, the driving somewhere new every day was a lot. And throughout my college experience, even though my professors had mentioned that there was that aspect, I had stayed very focused on it's all about the language. I'm going to hear interesting things in English, see interesting things in ASL, and share them with the other people, and it's going to be access for everyone and just great times. And that was true, and it also was me getting lost every day <laughs> trying to go to my assignments, me walking into uh, community settings where people were like, oh, that's so sweet, you're here to help the deaf person, go sit in that corner. And I'm like, no, I'm not here to help the deaf person, I'm help here to facilitate communication for both of you, and if I sit in that corner, they won't be able to see me and I won't be able to hear, so we're going to have to like, you know. So it was just all these different little things that fresh out of college, I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. And so I, over time, I got more accustomed to it. But I simultaneously was doing my master's degree part-time in teaching, and I started going, I've always loved tutoring. I'm really interested in everything to do with writing, especially writing in a multilingual context. So let me play around with that. I continue tutoring in a writing center. I, um, once I earned my degree, I did some adjunct teaching in a English for Academic Purposes program at the college. And I just kept thinking, I want to blend all of this together. How can I do it? And in the process of trying to figure that out, a job opened up at my, um, the program I had graduated from to be an academic advisor for the sign language study students. And even though I hadn't ever really thought about advising, I thought, wow, I would get to be in an environment where ASL is used every day because um, many of the faculty were deaf and I'd be able to work in a higher ed environment, which I really enjoy, and I can teach in the evenings, and it, I can interpret on the weekends, and it'll be a blend of everything. And so I worked 40 hours a week as an advisor. I went and taught English in the evenings, and I interpreted on the weekends. And after a couple years, I realized that that was maybe a lot. <laughs> it was like the running joke um, among everyone who knew me that I didn't have life except for work. But I was doing all these things I loved. And I was like, somehow I want to bring all of it together. And then I had an amazing opportunity open up to be a writing center coordinator. And it was at, it was at the same school where they, and the great thing was they also had deaf students. So I was excited to be actually coordinating a writing center, doing all the things I loved with writing and teaching and tutoring writing. And then also being able to mentor the tutors on how to work with deaf students, with multilingual students, to develop programming for those students. So just being able to be immersed in language. And that was, that was a fantastic job. It was so much fun. Through that job, I discovered that one of the things I was really, really enjoying was working with the tutors on their professional development. So... Although I enjoyed sitting across from a student and tutoring them on their writing or going to an assignment and interpreting, what was really like waking me up full of energy every day was thinking, how can I coach and mentor the tutors on how to do these things really well themselves? 
And then I started thinking, how do I build programming? How do I, you know, change the the staff meetings into something that's more ongoing and woven into their lives? And, you know, I know they're only going to be tutors during their undergrad and college, so how can I give them transferable skills so this is beneficial to them? And all of that just sort of grew and grew until I stumbled upon learning and development and went, oh, there's an entire career field for this. Um, and so that sort of brought me to where I am. I've been continuing to work in like learning design type of roles in higher ed. Um, and I'm looking for ways to expand that now into a more traditional L&D job. But that's sort of how language has influenced it all. Everything, like every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, um, how has using language impacted your career path? I mean, well, like you, it's impacted my career path every step of the way. So when I graduated, excuse me, with my with my degrees in English and Spanish, um, first I went, um, first I worked as a, I had like an internship and then a, like a very low paying research assistantship um, at a couple of different nonprofits in Washington, D.C. because I really thought I wanted to be like a professional thinker (laughs) and like and I but I discovered like the first the internship I had dealt with Latin American studies which um was very much in my wheelhouse and it was a great experience it was unpaid don't ask me how I don't know looking back I'm like why would I take an unpaid job out of college like I had a little bit very small very very small um inheritance from a grandparent like very small like just a few thousand dollars and I was like I'll be fine and obviously I wasn't fine (laughs) and so like when that internship ended I was in dire straits and needed to um, find a paying job and I got a a job as a research assistant um, on completely unrelated issues they were like energy and environment issues and which was interesting but the job itself was incredibly boring I was basically going through um, like through the Freedom of Information Act, the organization had gotten access to literally thousands of pages of like emails um, from the government. And it was my job to comb, to read all of those emails and find out if the government had prior knowledge of like, I'm really dating myself now, the Enron energy scandal in California in 2000, 2001. And, um, and it was... <laughs> the job was very low paying and it was incredibly boring. Like sometimes I would find myself kind of falling asleep and I thought this is not what I signed up for. And I also had to have a part-time job because I didn't have any money and the research assistant job was, um, it paid like $20,000 a year. It was really, really, that's a topic for another podcast. I think about like the pay, like what do you do out of college and like these internships, uh, nonprofits, it's a whole thing. So I was working, um, I was working at a wait- as a waitress and, or a server in a restaurant and most of the staff, like the back of the house staff spoke Spanish and so I would speak Spanish with them. And I, and that was the only practice I was getting that was, and I really, it was such a priority for me to maintain and grow my Spanish fluency. It was by that point, um, a significant part of my identity. Like I had spent a lot of time in Spain. I had studied abroad in Argentina at like a really um, pivotal time in that country. And it just, um, it was those, all of those experiences were really transformative and I wanted to continue. So I, I found an organization that was um, looking for teachers um, or looking for people to teach in um, public schools in Puerto Rico. And I was accepted into that program and 
I went to Puerto Rico, not really knowing anything about anything whatsoever. My first year teaching there was a total disaster. But again, it was completely transformative. And, um, and I won't get into all the nitty gritty details because my career is long and I need to shift, <laughs> I need to shift the conversation into something more current because we're still talking about, you know, 20 years ago that this happened. But it's, it's, I still find myself reflecting on that experience and coming back to it, like just like taking water from a well, like um, there's just so much that I learned about myself, about culture, about language, about teaching, about education, about systemic oppression and colonialism. Uh, which I know we'll talk about in our um, in our podcast as well. And then um, when I came back to the mainland United States, I, I lived at home for a little while and I was a little bit lost. I got a job as a long-term substitute teacher teaching Spanish in my home district, like where I had graduated high school. And um, it just seemed like a logical next step to pursue my teaching certificate. And I had a lot of, a lot of my family members were or are teachers. And I wish, you know, I wish I'd had a little bit more um, imagination or had been able to imagine more or different pathways for myself um, because it just seemed kind of obvious. And everybody always used to say to me because seeing that I was an English and Spanish major, like, oh, are you going to teach? Like people always said that and it was just kind of expected. And for a long time I resisted. And then, but I did enjoy teaching. Like the, the experiences I had, I was like, yeah, I enjoy teaching. And I had been a camp counselor and I had been a nanny and I liked being, I like, I still like kids. Like I like being around kids and I was like, okay, I'll do teaching. And, um, so I taught, you know, I taught for years. I ended up getting, uh, I did choose to do my master's in Spanish language rather than in education because I did, because I, I'm, st I had that, just that that drive to learn language to be get really deep into language and and culture and um and to really understand um in a deep 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 way um what it's like to to communicate with people naturally authentically um who are not like me who have different experiences than me and, and that was one way to do it and um so I taught in public school for years. I ended up, um, after I got married, I switched to private school and I taught in private school for a long time. And that gave me some opportunities to, um, to kind of do more creative things with teaching, with teaching language, um, because there wasn't like a mandatory curriculum that I had to follow in most private schools. So I was able to do some creative things with language education. And, um, and over time, as I got more and more experience in teaching, I was um, asked to um, deliver trainings, conferences, or by developing professional learning sessions for my own school or my own district, and by asking to, being asked to lead committees and, um, you know, help implement institutional change. And, um, and I realized that a lot of those things I was really enjoying that um, the adult learning aspects of my job and they were all add-ons <laughs> to my full-time teaching Spanish to high school students job and I was like okay I need to I want to move into I want to move more I want to shift more to the adult side and unfortunately in education there's just not um, and I, I ended up making the switch back into public school. And in public school, at least in the state of Connecticut where I live, there isn't really, there aren't many career 
pathways. There isn't a lot of choice. You have to be certified in order to get any kind of leadership position. And um, those leadership positions are very narrowly defined. And there's a lot of um, administrative and like ops things. Like if you want to, you have to have a special certification to become an assistant principal or a principal or a superintendent. And I'm not really interested in those things because they actually don't deal with adult learning. Like they really don't. That's like a very small part of their, of the job. And so um, I feel, I do feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but essentially this is what's brought me to, to L&D is like the focus on adult learning and on building, on coaching others and, um, and managing learning programs and, um, and understanding like skills gaps and then um, determining the kind of learning that needs to happen in order to close those gaps. Um, and not just for students, because, you know, over time that gets, um, it just, it gets repetitive. Um, and with, and with grownups, there are just, they're with adults, there are more contexts, right? Just many more contexts where you can apply those kinds of skills. So that's, that's where I am now. Mm-hmm. That's great to hear like your story. And it's interesting because you mentioned how you had so many very specific but transformative experiences that you keep drawing on. And I find it fascinating how that happens because I can think of examples for myself too where it's something that if you put on a resume or if you said to someone, I had this this job, it doesn't sound spectacular or maybe it wasn't a good job at all or an unpaid internship. And yet it's given me so much insight and and like that well to draw on, as you said. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Like it's it's funny how those, um, the moments that you don't think are going to be that important end up being important over mm-hmm. time. That is really interesting. What does it look like for you to use your languages in your current role? And um, what role does technology play in your work specifically with language? So currently, I don't directly use my languages uh, in my current role. I work as an education specialist for a pharmacy program, and so I support the faculty and the students both with the learning design and study strategies. And none of that specifically involves ASL or English. However, the understanding of how communication happens and how that influences education and access to education um, is something I use in my work. So, for example, I developed with some fellow uh, designers, I developed a pilot workshop on how to incorporate plain language into teaching materials. So discussing, you know, how can we make or how can we support faculty in making their uh, their whole communication system for a course as clear, concise, and direct as possible while still honoring the fact that their students need to learn very technical medical jargon and language. Um, so taking the basic English communication piece and saying how can we make that as straightforward as possible, take out anything unnecessarily convoluted, while still saying you do need to understand medical vocabulary and communicate in a specific way in this context. So that was really interesting. And then also my work in interpreting over the years led me to really uh, understanding and appreciating the need for access um, for 
like it across the board. So I learned a lot more about disability justice and advocating for access and universal design for learning, all of those things. And so even though I'm not day-to-day signing in my current job, that thought process of, you know, our recorded videos, including transcripts, uh, do we have multiple ways to access this information? If this is audio only or visual only, do we have the complementary option to access for the students? That's really where this, my languages are currently showing up in my work. And um, in terms of technology, it's still focused almost completely on access. How are we making things accessible in the educational technology we're using? Um, so what you say about like using plain language and making sure that like the the English language that's used is clear and like accessible is very similar to my daily, not struggle, but like my daily task with my students when I'm teaching Spanish because I have to do that in Spanish with my students. I have to make sure that I'm, that I, I need to be like 80 to 90% comprehensible to my students in Spanish. And so like, I, that's, it just, when you were saying that, I was like, oh wow, that really resonates with me because that's, it's just like finding, like finding the synonym for that is like the, either like the simplest and clearest um, and maybe maybe there's a little bit of sacrifice of precision, but you, you but when your aim is accessibility, like you're going for clearest, simplest, most accessible language, most easily understood, and um, and I and I also do that daily with with language, um, mm-hmm. and um, and I use I mean and you mentioned that you're not really using your your ASL obviously because you're working in a pharmacy program. Um, I use my Spanish all day every day with students but it's like um, I'm not teaching advanced levels so I have to be really intentional about um, about consuming media outside of school in Spanish. So I like listen to podcasts and, or audiobooks. That's mostly what I do and then I try to watch like some TV in Spanish or like change my socials into Spanish or my phone into Spanish. And, um, and then obviously like communicating with people that I know speak Spanish in Spanish, typically my colleagues, like my, um, and, um, and then (laughs) like technology, um, all of 90 to 95% of my instructional materials are in Spanish and I develop those using, you know, lots of ed tech tools, Google suite, of course, and then whatever is having worked in like a bunch of different schools, like whatever my school is using, whatever the school's using, whatever the students already know how to use, like that's what I'm using. I'm not trying to like, um, I'm not trying to impose new technology on them at the same time that they're learning a new language. It's like cognitive overload. So I'm just trying to understand um, what technology is already being used in, in the school, what are students already being familiar with, and then layering that with Spanish. And, um, Oh, and then, um, so this year I want to use, I haven't done it yet, but I want to use Duolingo for schools with my classes because it seems like they're really, um, like Duolingo has really, they're at the top of, of the top of the mountain in, in terms of um, what they've done for gamified learning and personalized learning. It seems silly to not, to leave that on the table and to not use it in class. Um, and in conjunction with that, I also like to have my students 
just the way that I consume media in Spanish um, on my own, I try to guide them to use to consume media in Spanish. So watching shows on Netflix or like watching YouTube tutorials in Spanish of their favorite sport or hobby or whatever, um, or just listening to music in Spanish and having them reflect on it. Um, they have this access to media produced by Spanish speakers for Spanish speakers that I did not have access to when I was learning Spanish in high school or even college for that matter. Like I was still lugging around like a huge dictionary in college. So like these kids have access to, to, to the language, authentic uses of language in totally unprecedented ways in the course of human history. Like they, no, no other humans in history have had access to this amount of media in this many languages. And so just guiding them to do that and um, and they actually, when they're doing something that they're interested in, in another language, they actually learn, they learn a ton. And, um, and so that's, those are some of the ways that I'm using language and technology. And um, I have to, I can't let this conversation go without mentioning like translation tools, like uh, Google Translate, you know, um, and it does seem like in my profession, we cannot have nuanced conversations about the use of Google Translate or machine translation. And, um, and that's a shame because um, I think the instinct is to kind of just ban it and, and penalize students for using it rather than um, teach them how to use it appropriately. Because the idea is, you know, the idea that like employees would not be able to use a tool, that an employer would ban a tool that is helpful and time-saving is kind of ludicrous, right? Like it just, it's kind of ludicrous. So, um, so I'm interested, you know, we, of course I can't let students do all of the, like they can't use Google Translate for all of their work. Just the way that we can't, we're having these discussions about AI, like you can't let AI just write your paper for you, right? But if you can generate a draft, if, if ChatGBT can generate a draft and then you personalize that draft and add your, and add things to make it your own and add, you know, evidence or whatever, like that seems to be okay. So I'm wondering, I don't have clear answers for this. I do have some strategies for helping students use Google Translate and other translation um, techniques um, more effectively. Um, but now you throw AI in the mix and I'm, I don't have a lot of answers. School, school starts in just a couple weeks for me and I'm, I don't have a good answer for AI right now. So we're just gonna, <laughs> we're just gonna learn as we go. We're all gonna be learning. <laughs> in my classroom. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense. And it's such an interesting time. And also, I really like what you said about learning how to use the tools as tools. Yeah. Um, although it's not specifically language related. I know when I was tutoring and teaching writing, there was always a constant debate over whether students should be allowed to use citation generators. Um, and I was always of the mindset that you need to understand when the citation generator is wrong yeah, so that you can fix it. Yes. So if you're just feeding your stuff in there, shooting it out and submitting it to me, I'm going to be frustrated. But if you're using it to take out some of the hours of tedious work and you've still understood 
the context of like what you need to correct and fix and why it's set up a certain way like by all means use it yeah yeah Um, I I mean it's very similar it's very similar to translation software right like mm -hmm. I can um it used to be that translation software was terrible and laughable and it's not anymore Mm -hmm. it's not but at the same time, like just because it's grammatically correct doesn't mean that it's pragmatically correct. It doesn't mean that it's correct for the context. Um, it doesn't mean that it's appropriate. People who are learning need to know when it's, they need to have enough knowledge to know when it's wrong, as you say. Like they're still, they still need to put in the work, you know, to, to actually learn. And learning is hard. And um, learning requires friction, right? You're, you need friction in the learning experience in order to make the learning stick. A little bit of friction, not too much. You need that sweet spot of friction. And unfortunately, um, translation software these days removes a lot of that friction. You know, technology does remove a lot of the friction from our lives. And sometimes we need some friction. So, yeah. That's a very good point about the way friction makes learning stick. Yeah. It has to be a little hard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, so on a personal note, my, my husband is trilingual. Oh, wow. Um, he grew up in India. And so he speaks English, Marathi, and Hindi. And ever since we've been together, I've been learning with very little success trying to learn Marathi. And I'm getting better at it over time, but it really made me aware of the difference of, say, learning um, learning a language in a structured educational program for an academic or a professional purpose versus learning language in a personal, social kind of environment without structure, without any sort of accountability really or need because we can communicate in English um but then uh, like trying to figure out like when I hang out with his family or friends and conversations switch to Marathi that that challenge level or that friction is so far up that I'm just lost I'm like smiling and nodding whereas you know like trying to figure out where it's just hard enough that they don't give up and switch to English because I'm so bad, but it's not so complicated that I'm totally lost. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I love what you say about learning language for a purpose. Like I think, I think, you know, traditional in traditional academic institutions, be they K through 12 schools or higher, you know, higher ed institutions, the, the language programs are mostly preparing students for like academic or professional situations. But I think just based on anecdotal evidence from how I've inter like the students that I've interacted with over the years, they're not really interested in that. That's too abstract for them. They want, they want to be able to, they want that social informal language. That's their purpose. If they, I mean, if they mm-hmm. have a purpose other than this is a requirement and I just need to get an A or a B and I need to graduate. Like I just, I'm taking it because my parents told me to took it to take it, you know. But like, if they do, if they are able to identify a purpose beyond that, it's always social or informal or like. I really, I really, I really got into Bad Bunny over the past few months, and I have a bunch of 
friends who speak Spanish at home and I just want to understand their jokes and I want to understand what they're saying, you know, and mm-hmm. that doesn't have anything to do with honestly, like the way that traditional curricula are set up. It doesn't have anything to do with what actual actually motivates people to learn a language. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think it's so interesting too, on the flip side, how much you can get away with not learning a language, mm-hmm. even if you're in certain multilingual contexts. And I think that's important to consider, too, because like when I was in college learning ASL, there would be people who either were my classmates or teachers who had sort of learned ASL because they had a deaf partner or friends or something. Um, And especially for those who had like, you know, a significant other who was deaf and who signed. I was always surprised if they mentioned that it had taken them a long time to learn or they, you know, there were even people who had never really learned ASL, even though a family member used it primarily. And I was like, how, why, like, how does that work? And the response was always, well, we've made it work and life was busy. And now I look at myself and that, that didn't make sense to me at the time. I was like, you had a native user of the language at your fingertips and you didn't take advantage of that. Meanwhile, I'm like, desperate to find that like what is wrong with you and yet now ah the turntable yeah like, here i am i know i don't speak <laughs> i don't speak spanish with my children because i'm not a native speaker my husband doesn't speak spanish and spanish teaching spanish is my job literally so like to come home and parenting is hard and to come home and then like try to be teaching my my kids and my which a language that I speak very well like I have I'm very fluent in Spanish like I have highly developed fluency but like to get to come home and then to try to be speaking to in Spanish to my kids I remember when my son was born and and kids and people would ask me are you going to speak to him in Spanish I was like I'm barely surviving like I'm barely surviving like I'm on three hours of sleep like no no I'm not going to be speaking to him in Spanish like no I wish I wish right I wish like I wish that it was something that and maybe this is a cop-out but you know like if I had been a native speaker or if my husband had been a native speaker if our families had spoken of course that seems a lot easier right it just seems because it's so much it's a part of heritage family heritage and Spanish is a part of my identity but that was something that I chose over time and mostly as a grown person, as an adolescent, as a young adult, as a further grown adult. And it's not a part of my heritage. And I think that's a really important distinction like between personal identity and family heritage. Like I can't appropriate, I, I can't appropriate a Spanish speaking heritage for, for my, for my kids. Like that's not, it's not a part of their heritage. They need to understand what their heritage actually is like their father is was born in Jamaica and they need to understand that and they need to understand my heritage as well like my roots in the Midwest and but then also in New England and so I feel like this is leading Mm -hmm. us a little bit to our next question which is um, how do language power differentials reveal themselves in your organization and then how does that impact your L&D work Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think for me, it actually is a little more focused on English at this point, even though ASL is, you know, there as my second language. What I see a lot is sort of the, 
elevating of quote-unquote standard English, standard academic English, saying there is this one right way to speak English, especially in the academy or as a professional. And the way that impacts accessibility, the way that impacts equity and linguistic justice. So when you think about having students in a program, these are students in a professional program, they're highly educated, um, and they may use English differently depending on whether it's their first, second, third, fourth language, whether they come from families where English isn't spoken at home, but they've learned it growing up in the school system here, or whether they are an international student who just moved here and are using English, you know, now maybe as a new, like for the first time or as a new experience in their everyday um, lives, like all of that comes into play. And then also the faculty, some of the teachers speak English as their first language, others speak it as a second or additional language how all of that plays and mixes together and trying to, you know, encourage people to look at it as essentially communicative competence. Like if we're all getting our points across to each other, there is no superior or inferior language or type of language. And yet that's something that really can be a stumbling block for people and and I understand too like when I was younger I, I love to read I love like old-fashioned literature kind of and and words that are just so cool and maybe haven't been in circulation for a while and if people didn't understand them or told me I talk funny or like they didn't have that finicky little grammar rule down I'd get very judgmental I have to admit and I'd be like you don't like your language skills. Come on, this is pathetic. You know, which I'm 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 ashamed to admit, right? But like, now I've I've shifted, so I can understand where that thought process comes from. But also trying to in my work and my communication with educators, saying like, hey, as we're designing our education, like as the classes and materials for students, and then also for students, like we're all working together. We're all communicating. <laughs> Like, we just got to get our points across. Yeah, totally. I had the same, oh my gosh, Sarah. Like, I did the same thing when I was a kid. I got called out for my, like, nerdy vocabulary all the time. Like, I had a huge vocabulary because I read a ton, and I was an only child, so, like, no one to play with. I read a ton, and I had a huge vocabulary, and I got really finicky about grammar rules and very judgmental, as you said. So I just want to normalize that. And I'm not that way anymore at all, in the reverse, as you mentioned. And it's funny, like, I'm the only language professional in my family. Like, I'm the only one, I, lots of teachers, but only one in language. And I'm also the only one who doesn't correct, like, my children's language use. Yeah, so, so much of what you say is similar to my experience as well. Um, so you mentioned, like, that you work with a faculty and student body that are linguistically diverse. And one thing that comes to mind immediately is that in... Um, in private school, when I was working in private school, one of the things we had to do was write individualized um, reports for each student every marking period, a couple of paragraphs at least. So this is like a pretty, I mean, it was tedious for me, but I'm a strong writer and I can, and I also process pretty quickly language. I process language pretty quickly. So I was able to get my thoughts on paper. Also had lots of years of experience, like assessing students and communicating feedback about their performance. So it, that was something I was able to do 
fairly quickly, but for my colleagues that were non-native speakers of English or spoke it as a second, third additional language, or any colleague that, um, that had um, like dyslexia or ADHD, not that I would know it necessarily, but you can imagine that with, a, with an organization that's so focused on these written reports that are written under an in incredible time pressure and you have to write them for, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 students, individual reports on each student. It was, a hu it was, in it was an incredible burden. It was a huge lift for them. And you also had to be very, very precise in your language down to like even the pronouns that you're using for the student, right? if we're talking about gender inclusion as well. It'd be very, like, mm -hmm. students would read this, their families would read it, um, college counselors would read it, advisors would read it. And so you had to be really, really aware of word choice. And you couldn't, there are things you could say and things you couldn't say, and a, a lot of unwritten rules. And I think that that was really unjust. I think that was, um, and there wasn't a lot that I could do. I did create some templates and I did share, like, um, versions of like, you know, here's a top performing student, here's a student who's middle of the road, here's a student who is struggling a bit this marking period. And I would share those with, um, with colleagues. But again, that was kind of like, I didn't want to impose that. It was more like if it came th up through organic conversations that they were having trouble, I would share it. But I also didn't want to make assumptions about their process. But, um, but that was that was not fair, like that was inequitable. And then, and now that I'm back in public school, we don't have that, that burden of writing those reports, but the, the, the population of my, the school district where I work is very diverse, like ethnically, racially, um, socioeconomically, and linguistically, like lots and lots of languages are spoken. And the district website and the school website, they have like automatic translation, but it's just like a Google Translate plugin ironic, right? Considering that we like ban Google Translate from the classroom, but like it's, it's a plug-in on the website. So, but it's just an automatic machine translation. So it's not contextualized and it also doesn't translate automatically any uploaded documents. So like if a family wanted to access the student handbook, which is a PDF that's uploaded to the website, they can navigate to the, to where it's housed in their language. But then they're going to have a heck of a time trying to translate that PDF of the student handbook into the language of their choice. They're not going to be able to do it, right? Like it's a PDF. So they're going to have to, how are they going to do that? So it just seems to me that, um, you know, if you're a student or a parent with non-native proficiency in English, you're at a clear disadvantage and you might not be able to access relevant information in your moment of need. And, um, and I think this impacts my work for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, I don't think I have the information I need about my students. I'm, I don't know, like, if they are, if their families don't have um, strong proficiency in English, there's no way for me to know that. Like, um, there's, I just don't have that information. And, and then also it's just like systemic inequity. It just means that there's, that the families that don't have that language privilege don't have the same access. And that's, that's a language power differential for sure. And a, and a, mm -hmm. and a result of monolingualism. Yes. Yeah, so everything you said there was really powerful and it really speaks to 
how much language plays a role in sort of every aspect of our lives and other people's lives and how many opportunities there are to improve equity and linguistic justice and access. Um, so with that, let's wrap up with our final question. What do you think the future holds for multilingualism in L&D? Well, I think, um, I think obviously that AI holds a lot of potential for, um, for L&D. And I think everybody's saying that, and I already mentioned that I don't have a lot. Um, it's not I don't I don't have like the keys to like unlocking AI strategy or anything like that. But I do think that there's um, that there's potential there to make learning assets um, available in many more languages much more readily. And I say that with trepidation because we can't we can't leave translation. Like we just can't, we can't just leave it to the robots, right? Because you can't, like, you can't just take an e-learning course and like dump it into Google Translate. You need a human, like you need a human to make choices about formatting, about language context, about word choice, about register. Is it formal? Is it informal? What, you know, if you're, if you're doing, if you're translating something into Arabic, like which, which variety of Arabic? Because there are many, or Spanish, or whatever. So you still need a human. Like you still need a human. So I think like AI assisted, um, AI assisted development or translation of language assets is um, is going to be important. But I think those assets also need to be developed in plain language, as we as we were talking about earlier. And when you were mentioning um, when you were talking about plain language. It, it reminded me of um, some statistics that I saw that in, and I'll put, like when we do the show notes, like I'll put the link, because I, I remembered the statistic and then I looked it up, I'll put the link to the data. But there's something like 1.4 billion speakers of English in the world, and only something like 370 million of those speakers speak it as their first language. So that means, that means English is the most widely spoken language in the world. And the data is a little fuzzy, like the numbers might not be exact, right? Because it's really hard to, to track this, but it's the most widely spoken language in the world. And first, people who speak first English as their first language are only 25% of that population. So, and then of speakers, of speakers, like of people who speak language, like people who speak English monolingual English speakers, first language English speakers, they're only 5% of the world's population. But think about the media production, right? And this is true in L&D, right? The, all of the learning stuff, all of the e-learning, all of our learning assets, like the vast majority is gonna be um, developed for a monolingual English speaking audience. And so, um, and I think that is just not representative. And I think that L&D's future relevance and effectiveness depends on an awareness of this linguistic power differential, um, especially for any language, any organization that has employees that speak languages other than English or produces anything for audiences that speak languages other than English, which is like, let's face it, like every single organization that exists. Yes, oh, 100%, couldn't agree more. <laughs> and I just would add to that, that I think the future of L&D and language or multilingualism, as you say, it involves the AI-assisted tools. And then I'd also add to it an awareness of the power differentials in language. As, as you said, building on that, 
who is speaking the language, who's creating the content, how they learn the language, you know, is there an opportunity for someone who's a heritage speaker of a language to share information on context or be making decisions or at least involved in the design team? Do you think it's like reasonable to say just having an awareness of the cultural dynamics and the the um like the oppression the language and that linguistic community may have experienced and how that influences who we're asking to or who's being hired and chosen to do sort of to be the human assistant for the AI does that make absolutely sense? and I, I think that okay. I think that absolutely makes sense I mean this is we're touching on I we're touching on um intersectionality right like this is right <laughs> this is and also just like a an inclusion and justice lens on whatever we're doing like um these when we're talking about language like it's not academic like these are this is this is real life and language is all around us and if people don't have access to language to for whatever reason um then that limits what they can do it limits how they can live their mm -hmm. lives. It limits the choices and the options that they have. That's so true. And when you look at the history of, you know, colonialism and oppression in language use, language access, who teaches a language and why they teach it and what variety of the language they teach it, there's so much interwoven there that as we go forward, we want to be aware of in in training materials and who's involved in creating the trainings to make sure that that's not perpetuated, that yes. we're considering that yes, and working to make a difference. Yes, 100%. As a white lady teaching Spanish, I'm fully behind that. Like I recognize, I recognize the, the complexity and the potential harm that, that I could be per perpetrating, right? If I'm not very aware of of all of the things that you just mentioned, the history, the legacies of colonialism and oppression, and and I've been teaching a long time, and I know that like I'm probably early in my early in my teaching career, I probably made a lot of mistakes in that regard, right? We've all done a lot of learning, I think, in the in the past decade or so, but mm -hmm. I mean, we always have I to remember agree. that positionality, like what is what is what is our positionality? Who's our audience? Who are we? Who are we trying to communicate with? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's something I've been very aware of getting started and interpreting as someone who's not a heritage user of sign language, who came to it because, hey, this looks cool. And then understanding along the way, the oppression the deaf community has experienced, the impact that's had on deaf people's access to sign language compared to hearing people's access to sign language so yes there's there's so many complexities to be aware of and so much to unpack in future episodes yes this will be great um, I'm so glad we got to have this conversation today I learned so much more about you and your background and I'm even more excited than I was that we're doing this together I feel the same way Sarah it's such a joy to talk to you and it's um it feels um I feel so grateful that <clears throat> that our paths crossed and even though we have very different experiences like it's led us to to intersect at this at this point in our lives with a lot of the 
um, same feelings and understandings about how language works and and why it's important especially in learning and development so thank you oh for sure thank you thanks for joining us for this episode you can find important links in our show notes this episode was produced by us Catherine R. Matheson and Sarah Kosal Agni Hotri. Our music is by Cube Sounds. If you like our podcast, you can find us wherever you get your podcast. Join us for our next conversation on LD Loves Languages.